on this day and on this pl in this place, uh, I invite you to make your devotion to God uh, the first choice of your day, and in this place uh, that your heart and spirit will be inspired by the God who loves us unconditionally, the God who nurtures us and sustains our life. So gr great to have you here, and family and guests who are here with us this morning as well. But let's bow in a moment to prayer as we give this day to God, shall we? God, your love has brought us together, and it is your love that sustains us through each and every day. And we pray that you would keep us faithful to you, even as we watch for signs of your kingdom among us. Strengthen us to work with you to bring about here and now your reign on earth. Give us the courage to witness to your presence in the world today, tomorrow, and on into the future. We pray in the name of the one who comes to us this day and who loves us dearly, Christ our Savior. Amen. You know that one of our core values here at Redeemer is uh, children and family, strengthening the family and ministry in a variety of ways. And today we're going to be talking about the home as the center of how we build a strong family. Uh, some of us uh, still have kids at home. Jan and I no longer have kids. All of our kids are adults and on their own, but we do have grandkids, and we are privileged to be a part of a church where there's lots and lots of kids. So all of us have people around us for whom we are examples of faith. And we have people who watch our lives to see if we're real, to see if we're authentic, and uh, to see if we live out the life of Jesus that we profess. Today we're going to be talking about how we build, uh, spiritually shape our, our lives of our children. And we're going to look at an example from the Old Testament book of Joshua. Next week we're going to be talking about how church begins in the home and uh, looking again at another Old Testament uh, passage in the book of Deuteronomy. You know, I, I, I'm keenly aware that all of us arrive at adulthood with either some scars or some brokenness created by parents, step-parents, siblings, or other people in our life uh, who were significant influences early on. And those experiences have helped to shape our personality and our behavior, um, which in turn helps us or hinders us as funct in functioning as a spouse or a parent, a grandparent, or a friend. And um, many of the problems we struggle with as adults in our relationships are formed by the blueprint of our lives at a very early age. So that's why we spend some time every uh, spring talking about how do we build strong families. And I think it's important that we hear from the scripture on how we can uh, continue to do better at that each and every uh, day. Let's pray together, shall we? Creator God, in your presence, uh, the mountains bow down before you. The scripture says the stars whisper your name. Faithfulness and justice are the shoes you put on each morning, and the evidence of your love is wrapped all around us and uh, in all that you have made. God, thank you for not keeping that glory to yourself, but spending it on us, coming to walk with us the dusty paths of this earth and being one of us. Today we're grateful that you keep your eyes on us and take us by the hand and you lead us each and every moment of the day if we will put our complete trust in you. Today we're here to worship you, to learn from you, open our minds and our hearts to receive all that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think together this morning about building a family of faith, I invite you to I reflect for a moment on these words by pastor and author Chuck Swindoll. 
Whatever else may be said about the home, it is the bottom line of life. It is the anvil upon which attitudes and convictions are hammered out. It is the place where life's bills come due, the single most influential force in our earthly existence. I'm sure you've heard it said that home is where life makes up its mind. Sometimes as parents we forget how powerful our seemingly small actions can be. Listen to the words of this reading called, When You Thought I Wasn't Looking. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you hang my first painting on the refrigerator, and I wanted to paint another one. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you feed a stray cat, and I thought it would be good to be kind to animals. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw you make my favorite cake, and I knew that little things are special. When you thought I wasn't looking, I heard you say a prayer, and I believe that there's a God that I can always talk to. When you thought I wasn't looking, I felt you kiss me goodnight, and I felt loved and safe. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw tears come from your eyes, and I learned that sometimes things hurt, and it's all right to cry. When you thought I wasn't looking, I saw that you cared, and I wanted to be everything that I could be. When you thought I wasn't looking, I looked and wanted to say thanks for all the things I saw when you thought I wasn't looking. As parents and as grandparents or aunts, uncles, we need to realize that we have a much larger influence on those around us than we ever realize. A while back, there was a news report about a study on the causes of teenage drinking. The researchers discovered that parents, families, are the strongest influence on whether or not their children will use or abuse alcohol. Where the home is strong and stable, children are much less likely to have substance abuse problems as they grow up. The results shouldn't surprise us, but they do because we overlook the power that we have for good or for evil in the lives of our children. Joshua, who is one of my Old Testament heroes, certainly understood the power of parenting. As he came to the end of his life, he called the leaders of Israel together for one final message. Knowing that he was only one step away from death, he sounded a call to renewal that began with a list of God's blessings in the past. And then he moves on to challenge the Hebrew people to be faithful to God. I invite you to hear his words. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family... We will serve the Lord. In the middle of this message, we find these stirring words that have been quoted and memorized for over 3,000 years. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. In these words and in the verses leading up to them, I find five decisions that I think we must make if we want our families to serve the Lord. And the first decision is to decide to build a grace-based family. As Joshua recounts the story of the conquest of the promised land, he quotes the Lord 
um, who has a strong reminder to his people. When you crossed the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I gave you victory over them, and I sent terror ahead of you to drive out the two kings of the Amorites. It was not your swords or bows that brought you the victory. I gave you land you had not worked on, and I gave you towns you did not build, the towns where you are now living. I gave you vineyards and olive groves for food, though you did not plant them. See, Joshua wants the people to never forget that they owed everything to God. It's easy to see how this might happen. After all, the Israel army had won battle after battle after battle, often routing the enemy from this new land that God was giving them. And it would have been natural for them to start thinking, hey, we're pretty good. We're tough. We're something special. But that thought is always deadly, and Joshua knew that once the people began to take credit for their victories, they would soon turn away from the Lord altogether. Now, it's a good reminder for us to do with our families what Joshua did with his people. It's, good, uh, it's a good thing to review past blessings and maybe even make a written record of God's faithfulness in our life. Sometimes we just need to say to our kids, you know, sweetheart, do you remember when you were so sick? And we prayed to God, and you got better. Do you remember when Dad lost his job? And we, we were so afraid, and we prayed to God, and God opened the door for him to get a, a new uh, job. Do you remember when we prayed for Uncle Joe and Aunt Cheryl to know Jesus, and six months later they became Christ followers? You see, a good memory of God's blessings in our life helps to build faith. Has God ever blessed you? Write it down. Think about it often. Tell it to your children, to your family, to your friends. Pass it along so that succeeding generations can tell the story after you're gone. Psalm 145, verse, beginning with verse 4, says, Let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts, and let them proclaim your power. I will meditate on your majestic, glorious splendor and your wonderful miracles. Your awe-inspiring deeds will be on every tongue. See, we build a grace-based family in several ways, but first of all, by remembering God's faithfulness to us. But we also build that grace-based family by practicing generosity, generous giving, generous living. When we give generously to God and to others, we teach our children to do the same. And they learn that, that we give because we've received and that God never stops giving to his children. And then finally, we build that grace-based family by being quick to forgive and slow to take offense. You see, love covers a multitude of sins, the scripture says, and it is love and the, it is the kindness of the Lord demonstrated by our actions that will bring our children to faith in Jesus Christ. Here's decision number two. Decide to teach your family to worship God. The first part of verse 14 says, so fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. When we think about the fear of the Lord, many people get the idea of cringing in terror. The biblical concept is much broader than that. Fearing the Lord means having such a deep respect for God that we want to please him in all that we do. One writer says it, uh, says it refers to the inner devotion that causes us to honor God. 
but how do we share this inner devotion with our family? Essentially, I believe what the Puritans used to call family religion. It's better caught than taught. It is more of an atmosphere than it is a program. When we as parents and other significant adults truly honor God, our children will learn how to honor him as well. When we love the Lord, it will be natural for our children to learn to love him also. When we sing songs of joy to God, our children will learn the words and the reason that we sing. And when we pray, our children will learn to pray as well. I especially believe that parents bear a heavy responsibility in this area. In far too many homes, the spiritual leadership in the family has been delegated to the mother, while dad sees his roles going out into the world and making a living. And we've laid a burden on mothers that God never intended them to bear alone. God meant spiritual leadership to be a shared task we tr if we truly want God's blessing on our family. There's a famous painting by Norman Rockwell that appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post back in 1959. A few of you can remember that far back. But it shows a suburban family going off to church led by the oldest sister, followed by mom, who is followed by the younger sister, and all three women are dressed for church, following them as a young boy who appears to be going with great reluctance. Why the problem? Well, at the center of the painting is dear old dad. And dad is slumped in his chair, he's still in his pajamas, he's reading the newspaper with a cigarette in his hand. And as the young uh, son walks by, he casts a longing eye at his father, and he's going to church, but he clearly would rather be staying home with dad. Parents, when will we learn that our actions speak louder than words? Decision number three, decide to become a student of obedience. Joshua said, put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord alone. We, the word serve is used in various forms about six times in these verses, and it's um, obviously the burden on Joshua's heart. Nothing mattered more to him than people be willing to serve the Lord God. He spe uh, specifies exactly what that means when he adds the word wholeheartedly. Every area of our life must be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. Wholeheartedly means there's no hidden rooms that we reserve for ourselves. In particular, it means putting aside all the false gods that we're tempted to worship as non, uh, and, and are worshipped by non-believers, gods that have no power to save, only the power to corrupt. It's a young man who was uh, in state prison writing a letter to the author of a Christian book that he'd been reading, and in the letter he shared this testimony of God's grace in his life. And here's what he says. I, today I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. In April, Jesus came into my life. I used to let all sorts of secular books and magazines dominate my life, but today as I look around, none of those exist, only Bibles and good reading. I enjoy spending time reading the Bible. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've tried to get what I saw others were getting from reading the Bible, but I never could. But one of my friends here told me to pray for understanding. And just like that, reading became joyful. The Lord has changed my life. I praise God for saving my life by sending me to a place where he could slow me down and get me away from the influences of Satan. Now, when this 
man came to Christ, he got rid of all the gods from beyond the river, as Joshua would say. The old literature, the adult magazines, the trashy novels went out with his old life, and they were replaced by the word of God and good Christian reading material. This was a sign of the genuine work of God's spirit in his life, but it was also a sign that he was becoming a student who was obediently growing in the knowledge of God. Decision number four, decide to remember your spiritual heritage. Here's what Joshua says in verse 15, but if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? Now these verses tripped me up a bit when I first read them, but then I understood that Joshua was appealing to the democratic sense of his hearers. He's actually offering them a series of choices. First, the true God, or the gods beyond the river, meaning the gods beyond the Euphrates, referring to the gods of, the, of Ur and the Chaldeans, and these would have been, you know, gods, the moon god, the sun god, gods of the ancient tradition. And then he refers to the gods of Egypt, meaning the gods of the sun, the rain, the darkness, the natural disasters, and the, the gods of the Amorites, which would have been the gods of fertility and sexual pleasure. And then Joshua says, make your choice. If you don't want to choose the living, true God, then go ahead. Go back to the gods, the false gods that you used to worship. And strange as that may seem, many of us even today actually do prefer the gods of this world to the one true God of the Bible. Some people's eyes are so blinded by sin and their hearts so given over to, the, to indulging the pleasures of the flesh that they prefer to drink from the cesspool of sin rather than drink from the water of life. And here's where we see the genius of biblical faith. We need not try to coerce people into serving God. If they prefer some other way, then let it be. It's almost always a mistake to crowd people too closely when we're attempting to uh, inspire them to Christ, to, to win them to Christ. Someone said, a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. We have nothing to fear and everything to gain by presenting the options and giving people the right to make up their own mind. Here's the last decision, decision five. Decide to daily choose to serve the Lord. The last part of verse 15 says, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. It's one of the most famous statements in the Old Testament, and rightly so because it expresses the heart of this great spiritual leader at the end of his life. And in these simple words, we find the will of God expressly stated. We are to serve the Lord, and we are to do everything in our power to see that our family follows that example. Not too long ago, someone mentioned that they were having a spiritual struggle. Very simply, this person has been living like a Christian on Sunday and just the opposite during the week. I don't know all the details, and they really don't matter, but the frustration of living a double life was obvious. What should he do? My Christian life is dry, he wrote. Uh, it's awful. I don't feel connected to God. What should I do? Maybe, maybe you felt that way at some point in your life too. But you didn't get where you are overnight, and you won't get out of the mess overnight. And we must begin each day by choosing to serve the Lord, and then we must follow up that decision with a hundred smaller choices in the right direction. That's what serving the Lord means. It doesn't involve the nitty-gritty, if it doesn't involve the nitty-gritty choices that we make each and every day, then we're still trying to straddle the fence. Serving the Lord involves 
as one author put it, serious godliness. And I like that phrase because it captures the spirit of Joshua's words. If we're going to do what he, what he did and say what he said, I'm, it will mean serious godliness for all of us. Let me ask you a question. Do your neighbors know that you're a Christ follower? Do they know that you go to church? How about the people you work with? How about the people you meet at the gym or at the restaurant or wherever you hang out? There are several implications to Joshua's statement. First, each of us must personally decide to serve the Lord. I can't choose that for you, and you can't choose that for me. We need a generation of Joshua's who will make this choice for themselves. Secondly, parents, we have a special obligation to set the right example in this area. We can hardly expect our children to serve Christ when we take our obligations to build faith in our family lightly. And third, fathers and mothers, you have a high obligation. If it's true that the apple never falls far from the tree, then we better make sure the tree is healthy. And, or else the, we're going to be, not be surprised by what the fruit looks like. I'm, I'm struck by Joshua's boldness in his statement. This is a public choice. He's saying, but as for me, meaning I don't care about the rest of you, I'm going to serve the Lord. Even though he was a leader of the nation, he was willing to part ways with his own people over this one fundamental issue. And I think all of us have to do that sooner or later. It happens to us whether we are office workers or executives or business leaders or teachers or students or blue-collar workers or simply dealing with our family, our friends, our neighbors. If we follow Christ, there's going to come a time when we must say, do what you want, whatever you do, I'll still be your friend, but you know what? I'm going to serve the Lord. This is a personal decision. But as for me, in the end it comes down to this. We must choose to serve the Lord. It won't happen by accident, and it can't be inherited from our uh, parents. They can give us the heritage, but at some point we have to make that choice for ourselves. This is also a persuasive declaration. But as for me and my family, this may be the most amazing part of all of the statement. Here Joshua is speaking as the God-appointed leader of his family. And he claims the right to speak for his wife, his children, his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, and even his servants. As the leader of this clan, he says, I hold proxy, their proxy in my hands. I, have hereby, I hereby declare that my entire household is going to serve the Lord. And every Christian ought to be able to make that statement about the family that God has given us. But it's also a positive statement. We will serve the Lord. It's more than a statement about forsaking other gods, though that's implied. It means that Joshua's family is going to orient itself around the worship of the God of Israel. His law is going to be their law. His commandments, their commandments. His worship, their highest goal. His glory, their ultimate aim. And I find it fascinating that Joshua doesn't say, my house without me. That would be kind of like the Norman Rockwell painting. Nor does he say, me without my house, which would be a different kind of hypocrisy. Both are joined together as God intended when he says, I will serve the Lord and my family joins me in this pledge. How can a person be so certain about their family? I think Joshua could speak like that because he had taught them well for years. And he knew of his own personal commitment to the, to the same God. He, uh, he knew their personal commitment to the same God that he worshipped. He had provided a good example for his family to follow. And I hope no one reads these words and thinks that they 
can live a careless life and at the end of their life ask God to save their family. To live that way and to pray desperately at the end of your life is to presume on the grace of God. But let me make it personal. Can I guarantee that, or can we guarantee that our children uh, will follow in our steps and serve the same Lord that we worship? The answer is no, because God has given each of us the ability to make our own choice, and we all know some cases where godly parents have produced offspring who don't serve Christ. So what does the text mean? I think it teaches us that godly parents do tip the scales in the right direction. We cannot guarantee that our children will always do uh, what we do, but we can provide the atmosphere that makes it easier to choose Christ than to choose the way of the world. I realize that I'm preaching about the family today, but in reality, I'm speaking to individuals. This message applies to all of us because we need to serve the Lord now if we plan to serve him at any point in our life. In the end, the decision is intensely personal. Are you ready to serve the Lord? Do you know where you stand with God today? The application could not be clear. Joshua says, choose today whom you will serve. In the words of Bob Dylan, you've got to serve somebody. No one gets a free ride. No one gets to straddle the fence forever. We have to choose. There's no room for neutrality. Every person needs a God, and every person must serve the God they choose. If you choose not to choose, you've already made a choice. You can't choose the true God by default or by inheritance. So I encourage you today to make the choice. Cast your vote. Choose your God. And I pray that you will make the right choice and be able to say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Creator God, guide us uh, to put first things first in our lives and enable us to follow your example of devotion to your heavenly Father and then shine your light into our lives so that all of our choices may be a reflection of our commitment to serve you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.